Hello, I'm Taylor Romans. And I'm Matthew Burrett. And this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. This week on Hard Beeswax, Taylor and I spoke with Addison Nace, a graduate of the Santa Fe Waldorf School Class of 2013. She is currently working on her Ph.D. in Design Studies in the School of Human Ecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We caught up with her from Chiapas, Mexico, where Addison is living as she pursues her research. We are individuals who are a part of this global educational movement. And we want to be clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Addison, thank you so much for being with us here on Hard Beeswax. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that this is my first time meeting you, but uh, you had Mr. Burrett over here as a teacher. <laughs> That's a teacher and a class sponsor. That's a teacher and a class sponsor. Very, very cool. So, Addison, when did your Waldorf education begin? Um, Well, technically, I went to Waldorf preschool um, uh, at Waldorf We Spirit with Joan Kennedy. Um, And then I um, went to public school for elementary school and started at the Santa Fe Waldorf School in seventh grade in middle school. Um, and then went all through high school. So I kind of did the reverse of most people in just coming for upper school. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. w- what was that like coming in at, in seventh grade? Well, there were quite a few kids, I think, who came into my class in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't too bad. And um, uh, I mean, people were always coming in and out and the students were really friendly. I think like why my parents chose it, chose Waldorf School for me, um, for middle school was, I think they just really liked the idea of like getting to hang on to childhood a little longer, which is something that I think as a 12 or 13 year old was something I needed too. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, kind of that foundation of having that preschool experience. Was it uh, a Waldorf preschool in someone's house? Yeah. 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 What was, you know, maybe what are some of your memories from that? And then going from there into maybe a public school first grade, what was that transition like for you as a, as a young kid? Um, well, I went to a really small, I went to a Sekia Madre elementary school. Yeah. Um, so it's really small. There were only like a hundred kids in the school. My first grade teacher, her son actually went to the same preschool I went to. Um, so she also kind of had a Waldorf background and I think Madre is like an arts immersion elementary school. So I don't feel, um, well, after preschool, I went to like a cooperative kindergarten thing. Um, I, my mom, I don't remember much of like, or my mom tells me that I refused to go to their like learning time basically uh-huh. with my best friend in kindergarten. Um, but do you think like, um, she's at Harvard law right now. So I think that just shows like, you don't really need to like be forced into learning when you're really small. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, I don't know. So public elementary school wasn't really, I feel like maybe it was just like that transition of starting school in general. Um, hey. yeah. yeah. Oliver's actually at Asakia Madre right now. My son. Oh, cool. Yep. Good. So what grade then, is he in? 
He just started first grade. Okay. I don't know if I know any of the teachers who are there anymore. Yeah. um, Since it was so long ago. Yeah. So then you came in in seventh grade, you joined a class. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there was, you know, a a decent amount of of inflow and outflow. What, um, What do you remember as far as blocks, as far as subject classes? What... What, you know, what as a seventh grader spoke to you? What were you excited about learning in that age? Well, I like, I mean, I really liked school. So I liked everything, basically. Um, I think the like perspective drawing in seventh grade was really exciting um, for me. Um, I don't know. I remember we also read like a biography of Eleanor of Aquintaine and um, just, I, really enjoyed that because she was such an interesting historical character um like um as like someone living in like the 12th century i think i don't really remember um but also very like open about uh, being an independent woman um kind of and i think she had multiple affairs so um yeah i don't know um but yeah i just really liked school so i liked everything yeah then what instrument did you play I played violin, uh-huh. um, but I started violin when I was, um, I think when I was five. So it was more just something that I like continued. Mm. Um, yeah. So had, um, you know, one of the most acute differences frequently for someone who has been in a non-Waldorf school than coming into a Waldorf school is the festival life and kind of the school calendar and these rituals and rhythms that are in place because it sounds like you were kind of peripherally maybe involved in the Waldorf community a little bit even before you came. Was that something very new for you, or had you already had some experience with the festivals, the fairs that were a part of the school calendar? We usually came to Winter Fair because yeah. it was like the one that was open to the public. Mm-hmm. So I do remember like going um, um, at the Winter Fair, there's like this gift shop thing that children can go into by themselves. Oh, the Wonder um, Shop, yeah. Yeah, but you had to like go through a tunnel when I was like three or something, and that was very exciting. Um, so, um, yeah, um, but yeah, so we usually went to that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think the festival life was like that shocking to me. I mean, um, I actually think in Santa Fe we kind of because we have like fiestas in the fall, mm-hmm. it might. Um, that there are like similar celebrations um, that get, I don't know, that are reflected, I guess, maybe in my home life or also a little bit at school that that wasn't such a big um, transition for yeah. me, I guess. What um, was your favorite festival? Um, at Waldorf School? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I feel like a lot of maybe some of that stuff feels less magical when you're in middle school because you're starting to get like I think the winter fair is still yeah. my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, so then, um, did you have an eighth grade project? The, no, we weren't doing that then. We weren't doing that then. Okay. So then, t- tell me a little bit about the transition from middle school into high school. How how did that work for you? Well, I guess for me, it was kind of like since I came in in seventh well, since the public school system, you end in sixth grade and then you transition into middle school. And a lot of my 
um, like friends were in the same middle school that they would continue on to high school. So I just like assumed that's what I was going to do. Uh-huh. So there wasn't like, um, I think we had to reapply to the high school or something. Um, yeah, back then, instead I of think like we just did. continuing on. Um, which was like, I don't know why I think probably as an eighth grader, I was like, I don't know why I have to do this. I already go to school here. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, um, I don't know. I didn't have like a perception that I would leave after middle school because I, we like had already done the like school hunt thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Great. And so tell me about, mm-hmm. tell me about some of your early experiences in high school. What do you remember? I, well, I remember like going to Viacitos. I remember we had to wear slippers in school at that time, which I think everyone protested. Yeah. Um, With the floor? Was that when bit. the floor was new? I don't think it was even that new. I think we just like had a policy for wearing slippers. And, <laughs> I um, can only. I remember feeling frustrated about it. I can only but... imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I was excited because I think we got lockers that year. So it was like exciting to get a locker for the first time too. Um, um, I think people were also like nervous because the high schoolers always looked really intimidating um, Mm. to us from coming from the lower school. And I think people were also like nervous a little bit about changing classrooms, but because it was smaller, that didn't end up being a big deal. Right. Um, and so yeah. then, you know, what what was it like for you academically then coming into high school? You know, you said that you really liked school. And did that continue on into ninth grade with the, you know, with the blocks and with having, you know, one of the one of the distinctions a lot of times between grade school and high school is your grades teacher is kind of dabbles in all of these things, right? So they can give you this big full Mm -hmm. picture, do the full eight years with you. And then in high school, you have these people who in many cases have to be experts, right? In whatever their subject is. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you academically? Well, we kind of started that in middle school because um, Ms. Stevens had started coming down to do, um, like math class with us, not in main lesson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I think Miss um, Colgate also came down to do like additional English classes with us. Um, and also because I went to like public school and had different teachers every year, I guess that wasn't like such a shocker to me. Yeah. Um, but um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think like something that was nice about or like um, we did still got to know our teachers really well because we still had um, teachers who um, uh, like stayed or like people were still there all through high school. Yeah. Um, so even if it wasn't like one singular teacher, you, you there was still that sense of community, I think. Yeah. And then what? Um, what blocks spoke to you? You know, you talked about Eleanor Vaquitaine in, in seventh grade and perspective drawing. What what were some of the early blocks in high school that that spoke to you? Um, I really liked the modern history block. Um, what else did we do? Um, I don't know. I still liked everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really liked English class that year. We had Miss Gorman um, or Meg, Meg Gorman, and mm-hmm. she was incredible. Um, and we read a bunch of uh, books by international authors, which I really appreciated. Um, so um, 
we also took Chinese with Miss Chen, which was like a really interesting experiment. Um, that was kind of exciting for me. Um, my cousin had taken Chinese in college. Um, my grandfather also lived in Shanghai when he was 21. So it was like exciting for me to like learn a little bit of Chinese um, to be able to tell my grandfather about that. So that was one of his interests, except he didn't. He um, like lived in Shanghai um, kind of immediately following World War II um basically mm -hmm. and he was teaching physics at an american school there nice um so he like didn't remember any chinese he just um i think he remembered how to say like good and bad or something <laughs> uh, but i don't know it was like nice to get to um um yeah i feel like ninth grade was like an experimentation year a little bit great and um so you know did you feel the social life and as you, I mean, you entered in seventh grade, a lot of times I think people coming into a Waldorf education, you know, in middle school or high school often worry about the social life. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Um, I made two really good friends in middle school. I don't know. Yeah, I think our Waldorf school social life was hard sometimes because mm. it was so small. Um, but I also had friends outside of school, which made um, things a little easier to balance. Um, but in middle school, I feel like um, I made, um, yeah, I had two really good friends and I basically like lived at their houses on weekends. Um, so, um, and um, in high school, my two, I think, my two friends from middle school weren't planning on coming. One of them ended up coming back for a year. Um, but I think just because we were so small, we also like learned how to get along better, um, yeah. even if we weren't all best friends. Um, but I don't know. I'm thankful for my friends outside of school too, because that was like a nice salvation to be able to like dip into other social circles occasionally. Right. Um, and Santa Fe is a small town. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think high school, it's hard for most people. Socially. <laughs> so. Definitely. So what, as a high school student, you know, small school, small community, what did you, you know, what kind of activities were you drawn to? Did you do activities as far as outside the classroom, right? Did you do sports with the school or were you doing out of school activities what what were you you know as a young person doing with your time um you'll have to talk to my sister if you want to talk about sports she's the athlete in the family um, <laughs> i did not do any of that um but i was on student council all yeah. four years of high school yeah you put on a lot of parties i remember yeah we i um victoria and i like through all the dances i think yeah i really liked being on student council we had a drama club for like one year um, that I did costumes for um, because I was interested in textiles already. Um, and um, I did ballet for a long time outside of school. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, and then I guess, um, yeah, I did take private lessons for violin too for a little bit in high school. I, some, I think by like my junior year, I stopped doing that though, mm -hmm. um, because I think my parents finally accepted that that wasn't my passion or something. So, <laughs> I um, think many of us remember that conversation. Those of us who are Waldorf kids, <laughs> you know, I don't think I'm going to play in an orchestra for a profession, mom. <laughs> so you mentioned 
just kind of offhand, like this initial that there was this interest in textiles, right? So mm-hmm. could you talk a little bit about where that originated and and how did you begin to explore that interest or nurture that interest as you were growing up? Well, I always liked clothes when I was a kid. Um, so I started to get curious about like making clothes at one point. Um, my mom, well, somehow my mom also found a class when I was in eighth grade um, up at um, the School of the Arts and Sciences where this woman was teaching um, like a fashion design class. Um, and I ended up inviting two of my classmates to come along with me to that. Um, so like every Friday, we went to another school and took a fashion class, um, which was really fun. Um, I think I also did a camp at the community college. Um, but after, um, so I was, um, I also did like handwork sewing from since elementary school, because that was just also like an interest of my mom's and mine. Um, so even though I wasn't in the Waldorf system, um, like, um, I, yeah, my par- my mom was like, both my parents were really encouraging of like any interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the sake it was also arts immersion, um, we got some like exposure to different textile crafts. Like we did the teaking in third grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think also like every year, my mom took me to the folk art market. The folk art museum is also my favorite museum in Santa Fe. Um, I've been going at to, to it since I was really little. Mm. Um, so I feel like that kind of exposure also helped my interest in textiles. Um, but when I was 16, I got a job at um, a local fabric store that no longer exists in Santa Fe. Um, and when I started working there, I, I got more interested in um, like weaving and like actual processes of making fabric. Um, so that's what I ended up doing for my senior project is um, like meeting the weaver and learning how to weave on a floor loom because I had never hadn't gotten that opportunity before. Um, yeah. I yeah. Re- I remember your senior project. It's one of the standout senior projects, I think, ever. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. So, can you speak a little bit more about your senior project? What um kind of what did what was your process like, and then what was the final product? Maybe. Um. Well, I, d- I did like weave a really long scarf, but I was also doing a lot of reading. Um, for more like, actually, um, kind of one of the books. I, I don't know. I was like such a nerd. So I was doing a, like a lot of reading about like academic study of textiles. Um, and one of the books that I found um, was published in 2011. So really recently for when my, my senior project I did in 2012, 2013. Um, it's called Textiles, The Whole Story by Beverly Gordon. Um, and she's actually an emeritus professor at Wisconsin. Um, so wow. when I like, um, yeah, I don't know. So coming to Wisconsin, I was like, oh, wow, this is like such fate because I read this book as an 18-year-old and basically after that was like, this is what I want to tell you for the rest of my life. Um, wow. So Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, Beverly, the book is really interesting. She starts out with like an analysis of um, textile metaphors in English language, um, which I had really liked English class. Um, but there were, I feel like there were also some moments in my education where people were like, oh, you might also like anthropology, Addison. Um, so 
Um, like I think Ms. Colgate mentioned that in the modern language block in 10th grade, um, in eighth grade, actually, we had to like do these reports on like news articles. Um, and someone reported on like an archeological finding. Um, so um, yeah, so Beverly's work kind of combines like a historical analysis and more of an anthropological practice. Um, I think she's more of a historian and practicing artist, but at least her like introductory book had a little bit of that. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I um, actually last spring semester, I lectured for the textile history course at Wisconsin and I um, used some of the chapters that I first read when I was 18 for that. Um, <laughs> that so. is so cool to, to see, yeah. you know, to see yeah. those things come full circle, because I'm sure as an 18 year old, you couldn't possibly fathom that you might someday be in the same institution mm -hmm. as this person who yeah, yeah. was really inspiring. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I could have imagined that as an 18 year old, but um, the textile world is very small and so is academia. But. <laughs> then you do this for your senior project and um, high school does come to an end. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure there was a point of, you know, senior year, what am I going to do next? And we've talked about the senior project, how some people it's kind of this just, hey, I'm interested in this thing. I have no further interest in pursuing it later. I just want to explore something or I want to do something fun. But in mm -hmm. your case, it sounds like you were really drawn to this thing and it aligned with maybe what you were looking into after high school. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what was the process like of deciding what you were going to do after high school? And then, you know, what sort of maybe input or guidance or advice did you get through that process and where did you end up? Um, I think for part of high school, I thought I wanted to go to art school for a long time. Um, and then after 10th grade, um, I went to an art camp in Ireland that was like led by two artists um, and was structured more how like art school would be with critiques um, mm -hmm. and like studio based practice. And after that, I was like, well, that was fun, but I don't think I want to go to art school um, because mm -hmm. I think I was more interested in um, exploring thoughts through writing, not through um, like actual visual media. I like writing about other people who do that. Um, but I'm not very good at that. Nice. Um, so I think, um, I knew I wanted to stay somewhere small. So I mostly was looking at liberal arts colleges. Um, I knew I was interested in the study of textiles, but also everything that I was looking up for when I wanted to study were like graduate programs. So, um, because I didn't want to like do a fashion major per se, um, um, so I started looking more at like schools with art history or anthropology programs or some way I could combine them. Um, and, um, my senior year, or I think actually in 10th grade, um, we, I, Ms. Freitas was really good at having, um, a lot of people or our college guidance counselor was really good at having colleges come visit our school mm -hmm. at the time. So in 10th grade, someone came. Um, um, from a school that had been closed since 2007 um, and was working on reopening. Um, 
which is Antioch College. And I think I remember at the time, like not being um, interested in it. But then I got a letter my senior year that was like apply to Antioch for a full tuition scholarship. Um, and then I decided, okay, well, I can't not apply um, if I got this random letter. Um, so I applied to Antioch, I got in, um, and I went to visit and um, it, it just, it, um, Antioch was really funky, it was really hard, but um, I think at the time it also felt like the perfect place. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, actually like, I think about a quarter of my classmates had had a Waldorf experience at some point um, wow. at Antioch. So. Um, yeah, lots of kids from alternative educations at Antioch. Um, mm. But yeah, that's where I ended up going. So would you say then that you fit fit right in? It wasn't, you weren't consi- looked at as being odd that you came from a Waldorf school. You didn't have to really explain your background too much. Um, well, like, I feel like we, I don't think anyone at Antioch was considered odd um, just because like, um, I think everyone was like looking for a place where they could be like different together, mm-hmm. um, kind of. Um, and um, I think what more ended up happening is that some people had Waldorf experiences, some people were unschooled, some people went to like um, like arts immersion high schools, um, and we all just kind of like ended up explaining the like difference in educational experiences to each other. Nice. Basically. Um, that, so. that sounds much more productive than my college basketball coach saying, Oh, Taylor's our art major. And I was like, I'm taking one art class. I'm not an art major. <laughs> she went to the hippie school. <laughs> I, I, okay. <laughs> okay. I guess there are battles worth fighting and that's not one of them. Yeah. I think like quite a lot of us went to some form of a hippie school. So, um, yeah, and Antioch is a hippie school, so it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. So then you were at Antioch, and what was um, what was your college experience like? So Antioch is, um, you're required to have like a work experience uh, or four different work experiences outside of the classroom. Um, so at the time, we were on a quarter system schedule, and we went to school year-round which people were like, this is horrible, um, or people outside of it, but Antioch, um, but actually like, I didn't, we had like two week breaks in between our quarters. So I could like go home for short visits. Um, and I think most people when they're in college don't actually want to like be home that often, um, and are trying to get internships and things. So we just have that like built into our education system. Um, so I didn't start college until October. Um, which was really hard because my sister was still in high school and I would like come to volleyball games um, for her in the fall. And people were like, wait, aren't you going to college? Like, why haven't you left yet? (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, um, I don't know. Our quarter system, I guess, like followed more of like a pagan calendar because we usually have our break close to the 21st. Um, Mm. So like the solstice. um, Yeah. uh, and um yeah like actually reflected the seasons a little better um but um yeah also like very intense you'd have like four classes at once during the quarter um and 
uh, well, we'd study for six months basically, and then go on a co-op experience. Um, so for my first co-op, I went to, um, I came back home to Santa Fe and worked at Site Santa Fe. Um, actually, um, that was another institution I was involved with in high school. I did their young curators program my senior year. Oh, that's right. I remember um, that. Yeah. Um, so I like came back as an intern, um, and helped develop or, um, I got to help with the young curators, which was really fun again. Um, and, um, yeah, I enjoyed working for a contemporary art museum. Um, then I went to, um, the museum of fine arts in Boston for a co-op. Um, I was there in winter 2015 and that was their like worst winter on record. Um, there was 15 feet of snow in the like three month period. I was there. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. I think maybe that colored my experience of Boston, yeah. but, um, uh, I, I did not like Boston. I also felt like people were snobby and, uh, people kept asking me if it was like the first time I had seen snow since I was from New Mexico. I was like, no, oh, we have mountains. Please stop asking me this. <laughs> um, so, um, but I worked in their education department. Um, it's very different working for like a large encyclopedic museum instead of a, um, uh, like a small contemporary art museum. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know, I guess I could also draw from Waldorf education a lot with that for like going through Greek galleries or like, um, uh, yeah. Um, the MFA also has a really cool Egyptian collection. Um, oh, nice. So, uh, and, um, but yeah, um, so that was an interesting time. Um, and then I switched gears and wanted to do something more by textile oriented and I went and worked on an alpaca farm in Washington state. Um, and then I came to, for my last co-op week, or if you were at Antioch, we were also required to, to study a language for at least one year. Um, but I decided to stick with Spanish for three years. Um, so technically I have a Spanish language focus, but it's kind of like a Spanish minor. Um, and if you were studying a language, you had the option to try and go abroad for an extended co-op and do a capstone project in your target language. Um, so I came to Chiapas, which is actually where I am right now, wow. um, and worked for a weaving cooperative um, or volunteered with a weaving cooperative um, and um, did more like interviews and learned about backstrap weaving. Um, and then that turned into my um, senior thesis. Um, but yeah, those relationships I think were really valuable that I made in 2016 because now I'm back um, and still working with the same weavers for my doctoral dissertation. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. tell 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 us more about your your dissertation. What 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 are you what are you focused on? Um, my dissertation um, um, it's focusing on more like intellectual property um, and indigenous conceptions of knowledge within textiles um, within Zina Cantan Chiapas um, and Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala. So next month I'll be um, going to Guatemala for another five months to continue um, my field work. Um, but um, basically, um, well, Chiapas is um, the poorest state in Mexico and also has a large population of Mayan 
people. Um, I think there are like 25 different Mayan languages here, um, but in the highlands, um, people mostly speak Sotzil Mayan. Um, and Guatemala, I think it's like 49, 50% Maya. Mm -hmm. um, um, so like there are some like similarities between um, Chiapas also used to be part of Guatemala um, and then separated after um, both Mexican and Guatemalan independence and decided to join Mexico. Mm. Um, but so Mexico in November 2021 put a law in place that grants indigenous and Afro-Mexican communities rights over their um, designs. But that's like, um, so I guess I was like curious to see like how that's actually like affecting daily experiences of people. Hmm. Um, and in Guatemala, there's been a weavers movement since 2007, where they've been trying to get a similar law put in place in Guatemala. Um, I think um, they're still like, or they're still struggling for um, that kind of similar, like legal protection, essentially. But yeah, um, so that's kind of what I'm researching. So you were talking, you used a term right when you were describing your project. Was it like the intellectual something in textiles? Yeah. Um, so the same group that's led the weavers movement in Guatemala has like, they wrote a book where they conceptualized um, how textiles are the books that um, the colonists couldn't burn, mm. um, which I was really inspired by that idea. Um, however, I think um, so Maya textiles have mostly been analyzed at like a semiotic or symbolic level. Um, so like this figure means this, this figure means this. Um, but I think there's a lot of room for um interpretation and change in that um like uh i don't think like those symbols might I, well i think a lot of people have talked about how they've like lost those meanings and have like reascribed some of those meanings or how they've been like misconstrued by anthropologists mm -hmm. um but because i am also interested in like the process of actually making textiles and i've had this like maker experience um as like a hobby since i was uh, 11 or so. Um, I'm interested in like if there's like actual knowledge conceptions embedded in the making process of the textiles that haven't really been explored. Um, so something I think that um, I'd like to do in the future is um, people are kind of concerned about like dying techniques basically or techniques that are dying out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but so within like Latin American scholarship of textiles, um, there's kind of like a, um, or working with indigenous people, there's been a transition on like rescuing textile techniques or remaking objects. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of more entering Anglophone scholarship now. Um, so I guess in the future, I'm interested in um, engaging or working with weavers on um, some like remaking processes mm. for um, thinking through historical processes of making. And, um, and that would help to save some of the techniques that might be becoming lost? I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't, I'm not really interested in the idea of like saving a technique because I also think people should be allowed to explore new techniques and find like new interpretations of like what it means to be Maya today. Um, but I think like, um, 
I'm interested in, um, yeah, so like there isn't like a library of textiles, um, at least within Zena Kantan, the tradition is when someone passes away that you, um, uh, like they're buried with their clothing or their, oh. like handmade, um, or sometimes their clothing is burned if they can't bury mm -hmm. um, someone with everything. So clothing is like really tied to the person. Um, so I'm more interested in like creating a um, like archival record um, from what is like within an oral history memory um, or like a material record of what's been kept as an oral history. So as you're working on a project like this, what do your days look like? Are you sitting beside a weaver as they are working? Are you traveling to different communities? Could you talk a little bit about kind of what the actual you know, process is like of you being there and, and studying? Um, I've mostly been doing interviews right now. I have also been um, like documenting a collection that a cooperative has collected. Um, I'm working on digitizing that because I think there's also like an interest among um, um, well, um, like younger people, um, everybody has a cell phone nowadays. So I'm interested also in thinking about other ways of how, um, people within a community can access, um, different material items or, uh, at least like know where they could go to find that information. Um, I was talking to a young woman who like says like, she likes looking at historical pieces for inspiration. And usually she like first goes to the internet to start finding things. Um, mm -hmm. So I think like um, that, like the process of digitization can be like an entry point for people to begin exploring that. Mm. Um, so um, I've also been in after like interviews, I've been trying to take photos of the like few pieces people have actually saved um, that weren't buried um, with their loved ones. Um, and usually that those are pieces that, um, were part of a, um, within Chiapas, um, well, in Guatemala, there's a system called cargos, um, that's like kind of like a religious task. Um, so people who have held cargos, um, their families have kept the objects, um, either for the specific dress they needed to wear as like while holding this role or, um, objects that were made, um, for like specific um, religious ceremonies. Um, and people are Catholic, but here, but it's more like Maya traditional Catholic. So there's like a mix of um, Maya beliefs with Catholicism. Hmm. And do you find that a lot of the maybe inspiration behind the, the weaving is kind of maybe religious or spiritual in nature? Um, I think it's more connected to the natural world, actually. Um, mm. So, and is that uh, in the images and the colors and all of the above? Um, yes, yeah. Um, well, like um, something that I'll probably one of my dissertation chapters I'll write about um, in Zena Canton, where I primarily work, which is like a indigenous municipality. Um, they, um, Zinecantan is like an Aztec word for the place of the bat. Um, so I think like in the past they were known to have a lot of bats. I have not seen any, um, personally, but also 
I don't think I've been in there enough that night um, to really <laughs> witness any of that. Um, so, like, they wear a dark black skirt as, like, a reference to um, their home place. They also wear a cape that, like, kind of looks bat-like with wings. Um, but um, since maybe the 70s, um, so previously their, like, um, clothing was mostly, like, based um had more so stripes um and then some brocade like geometric brocade so um triangles rhomboids um or rhombuses rhombi i don't know um <laughs> things okay. like that yep um but now they do really elaborate embroidery of flowers hmm. um so they've actually started using sewing machines to embroider um their clothing with flowers um, and I think this rise has also happened at the same time that the town has transitioned from like subsistence agriculture, primarily in corn, to um, engaging more with um, floriculture and cultivating flowers. Um, well, um, yeah, I think in Mexico, like every church has to be decorated with flowers. Um, mm -hmm. they, I guess there's also like people who have traveled. Um, in order to sell the flowers, but that's like one of their main industries besides um, textile crafts. So um, I think like the, by like putting the flowers onto the garment, it's also kind of like a, um, or it's a, it's an embodiment of the land onto the physical body um, basically. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, and like each municipality also has their own style of dress that like signals where they're from. So I think there's a deep like geographic or um, uh, like land-based connection between dress and the body and community um, and land. So yeah, did, did I'm sorry. I don't. I guess I I didn't realize. I I, don't, I guess maybe my question is: How did you become connected with the Mayan culture and and Chiapas and in this area of the world? Where did that come from? Partially accidental, um, basically because my university had a connection here. Um, I was also interested in maybe coming to Peru um, to learn about Andean weaving practices, um, but. Um, one of my college advisors also worked in Chiapas. Um, she worked more so on like, um, I majored in anthropology in college, um, but um, so she worked more so on like gossip and politics um, mm. within my culture. Um, but yeah, so partially accidentally and, um, but really I, re I just really wanted to study like handmade textiles uh. um, and this is a really rich region for that what what is a maybe kind of like a, a really big question that you dream of maybe someday exploring in the world of textiles if you had unlimited funds and resources maybe what mm -hmm. what would you kind of dream of diving into or are you doing that now I don't know. I think I'm really lucky that I'm getting to like live my dreams a little bit. Um, and I think there's, um, yeah, I don't know if there's like one question I can narrow down to. And I think like part of being an academic is like that you get to keep exploring random ideas. So, hmm. um, yeah. Um, 
probably in the future, I will like transition to working more in South America, mostly because um, my partner is from Chile. Um, so I know like, um, luckily there are also like weavers in Chile, um, but from a different, um, the majority of people are Mapuche who work with textiles, um, but also Aymaras. Um, so I feel like eventually I will transition into working more in that region. Could you speak a little bit about your um, the exhibit that you that you put together? I mean, and and I just happened to stumble upon an article about it, but it sounded incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, so part of my experience at Wisconsin is I've worked with the CDMC all four years, and particularly, which is the Center for Design and Material Culture. Part of the center has a textile collection um, that a professor. Um, mostly accumulated, um, called the Helen Louise Allen Textile Collection. We have over 13,000 textile objects um, within the collection um, from all over the world. I think um, we don't have any from Antarctica, um, but I think almost all the other continents are represented. Wow. Um, actually, I'm not sure if we have any um, Australian textiles. While working there, I was the Jane Graft PA. Um, basically, as a way to fund your graduate education, you can either teach or um, do like a research assistantship. So for this um, project, I was doing a lot of research on um, uh, our Southeast Asian collections because we got a offer for a big donation from the same region. Um, so while I was doing this research on Southeast Asian textiles, um, I felt like there was a similarity of, um, at, well, within Maya textiles, there had been um, taboos about cutting fabric previously. Um, so normally everything had four selvages um, in the past. Uh, that isn't the case anymore. Um, but I was seeing some similarities also happening in Southeast Asia. Um, and part of my interest is that um, with my work is thinking about um, ways to like not be so Western about our definition of clothing and fashion. Um, so I was interested in like trying to present an exhibit to think about how to um, uh, like show that there is change in design um, and innovation in what like has been perceived as traditional costume, mm -hmm. um, essentially. Um, yeah, so that's um, kind of where the exhibit started. And so when you are doing this research, then are you curating the exhibit or are you more, mm -hmm. so you went through that whole process of not only doing the research, finding the threads, kind of the through lines, and then actually putting together, organizing the display, all of that. You did all of that. Um, well, I had a lot of help too. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I wrote all of the wall text and picked all of the objects. Um, and then I also, I didn't actually like put any of the objects in the gallery, um, but I like determined where I wanted them. Um, like with working with um, our preparator um, and our collections manager on campus. So, Do you have to wear all sorts of protective gear when working with textiles in a collection um, like that? No, I think there's a, like, there's a big misconception about museum work where you have to um, like wear gloves 
like the white cotton gloves is the stereotype. Um, but that's actually not like common practice in museums anymore. Um, normally, um, because actually you're more likely to damage something if you're wearing gloves. Um, oh. So the practice is more to have like clean, dry hands. Um, my Our collections manager always joked like, we're really COVID prepared because you have to wash your hands constantly. So if you touch your face or you touch your hair, you have to go wash your hands again, um, basically. Um, uh, and then normally because textiles are so big, you have to work with one other person to handle them. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been a, a surprise for you in working with museums and exhibits and, and textiles? Is there something that you that surprised you about that? Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how <laughs> maybe to answer a curveball question. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe just as we're as we're wrapping up, were there? You know, if when you when you look back now on on your Waldorf education in particular, was there any part of it that that you have lingering questions about that maybe we could answer as as, you know, Waldorf teachers who know a little bit about what's behind the curtain? Were there any, you know, rituals or practices or um things that were taught that you look back and say, that just never quite made sense to me. I mean, I think you rid me. It's a question for everyone, basically. Um, yeah, that might be the only one. Yeah, you rid me. I, I mean, I did really, yeah, I did really appreciate about Waldorf education. Like, I think we, like the way we learned science more so had like a history of science approach to it. Um, that like what we were learning in um in history class was also the same period where like certain scientific discoveries were happening. Um, so I, I did like appreciate uh, those like threads um, happening in ed- in my education. I think also like the way um, um, that kind of like integrated form of thinking has also like really informed me as a scholar now. Hmm. Um, so I do appreciate that about Walder, my Waldorf education as well. Nice. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Any last questions, Matthew? Well, I just, I guess, I guess what came to mind is just listening to you talk. It sounds like textiles. I mean, you almost use the metaphors of threads running through your life and and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. How <laughs> it's everywhere in English. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's just so great to talk to you. It, I, you know, I'm really grateful that you that you're willing to spend an hour with us and oh yeah no problem (laughs) is there is there any work that you've done anything that um we could direct someone who maybe wanted to learn more about what you're doing or who was interested in supporting your efforts somehow is there any any organizations you're working with maybe anything you'd like to promote well i'm also on the board of an organization called natique esperanza um it's easy to find if you knit or I think our website is natique.org. Um, basically, we are um, kind of a granting organization to grassroots organizations in Chiapas and Guatemala. Um, and we mostly support um, um, programs of educational, um, economic sustainability, and health um, now. So if like people want to go donate to Natique, I personally really appreciate that. Um, because um, 
like the organize that our partner organizations are like visionary leaders um, and are trying to work on changing their communities um, from within. Um, and as an organization like Vincent isn't really like driving the ideas or how they do things, um, um, the resources they need to be able to do the work hmm. um, that they want to do. And just for listeners, how do you spell Natik? N-A-T-I-K. Great. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that that, um, that website is linked with the episode cool. so people can give if they feel so inclined. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of our partners is um, the Weaving Cooperative I work with now, Mo Harris and Brando La Vida. Um, and then, um, yeah, uh, we have a lot more partners in Guatemala. Um, and they also have a little school, Mo Harris and Brando La Vida, that's called Yo Unique learning center, um, which is really beautiful because the teachers are scholarship students in upper high school and university who are from the community. Um, so they're able to like give classes um, in Sotseal, so um, in their native language um, to younger children, whereas most of all, of, or all of school is in Spanish, basically. Um, so people are having to do it in their second language. Um, Very cool. Yeah, and then in Guatemala, um, we have a traveling library program that's working on like bringing books to, um, rural areas of a community. Um, and another program that does adults and, um, like children's education, um, there's really high rates of illiteracy, um, among adults, um, or Mayan adults, I think both in Chiapas and Guatemala. Um, and then, um, yeah, I, I, um, and another scholarship student program. Um, so yeah, just, yeah, lots of work to try and keep students in school. Mm. So. Amazing. Well, thank you mm -hmm. so much. It was so lovely to meet you and hear your story. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. All right. Great. Thank you, Addison. This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us. You have our utmost gratitude. <laughs>